Hello and welcome to another episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me today are Sharon Kamathi, Editor at Fintech Futures. Hey! And Greg Watts, Fintech Futures regular contributor slash resident expert and CEO of AI matching platform Finder. Hey, Alex! Despite the glorious sunny weather we're experiencing in London right now, I'm afraid we are all indeed still recording the podcast from home due to the ongoing lockdown. So please, if everyone could feel bad for us, that would be fantastic. Um, we're going to be grilling Greg on fintech priorities, do's and don'ts when it comes to entering new markets in just a little bit. But first, we're going to pick up on some news from the past week in numbers if you're a regular listener, you'll know that we've all arrived today with some big number-led stories to talk about. Uh, Greg, it's becoming swiftly traditional that our guest goes first. So why don't you hit us with your number? <laughs> well, I'd be delighted to. Well, I think I think the first headline that I'm I'm, I'm going to comment on is this 40% reduction in valuation for Monzo. And I think, you know, whilst it's headline grabbing, I think we should just remind ourselves of just a few, a few things. Um, well, first of all, they're barely five years old. They only started in 2015 and only got their first customers. I think it was in about February 2016. And so roll forward to 2020 in a global pandemic. They're still worth, I think it's something like 1.25 billion. Um, so for a 1.25 billion valuation for a company that's yet to turn a profit, in, in my book, that's pretty good. Um, I mean, saying all of that, of course, Tom and the team will be, you know, very much aware slash concerned of um, of that uh, reduction in, in valuation. But I'm pretty sure that his focus and the team's focus will be on how can they create uh, profitable profitable customers. So I know that they've they've made a number of exec hires. They've also had some exec exits as well over the past few months, which isn't surprising for a company going through such you know rapid growth. But their their focus, in, in my in my opinion, absolutely now has to be on creating that profitable that profitable user base, and there'll be obviously a lot of pressure from existing from existing investors to do that. And um, you know, call me old fashioned, but I, I don't think it's unreasonable for a potential investor to want to see revenue and ideally profitability um, in the business that they're going to be investing in. But but I would say is let's not you know let's not lose sight of the fact that they are still just not even five years old and they are they do have three and a half million customers so I think that's I think that's that's pretty impressive. Um, but talking of talking of funding and uh, and you know what we're seeing uh, amongst the VC community, I mean Alex, it's probably a good question to now kind of hand back to you to see you know from from another piece of recent recent news. Yeah, sure. I mean. Um... I think uh, the story is an interesting one. <clears throat> Excuse me, the story is an interesting one. Like you say, um, I mean, the I think the one of the bigger uh, one of the other headlines here is that um, another challenger bank N twenty six manages to manage to maintain its valuation in its latest uh, Series D funding uh, this month, and it sort of shows the the differences that can occur um, between the challenger banks and their different fortunes. But I think also there there is a tendency from some to see every little hiccup for those in the challenger bank space as uh, world ending. Uh, and like you said, I think it's by no means uh, apocalyptic for Monzo, but it's definitely something to watch for the future. But uh, yes, uh, on my side of things for the the week in numbers, the last two shows I've actually turned up with uh, disappointingly no, low numbers, but I, I'm back with a bang this week. I've got uh, 6.1 billion 
that's in dollars and that's uh that figure may actually sound like a lot but it represents the worst venture capital funding quarter in fintech since 2017 this is according to a cb cb insights report so q1 2020 has uh perhaps understandably been a bit problematic a bit of a problematic one for fundraising uh, it saw just 404 rounds with only 13 mega funding rounds uh rounds where more than 100 million is raised um which also made it the worst quarter for mega funding rounds since q2 2018 um early stage seed and series a fintechs bagged about 228 deals which made it a 13 quarter low for that and a nine quarter low in funding uh when it came out at 1.1 billion that's again in dollars. So we've had some large rounds, though, in the quarter. Revolut's 500 million, Toast's 400 million, Bact's 300 million, Kleiner and Chime each having 200 million. Um, initial analysis of the figures indicates that the uh, the plummeting numbers are down to investors pulling back on early stage bets um, to focus on shoring up their portfolios in what is obviously going to be a risky time for them. Uh, in fact, US VC giant Sequoia Capital, which controls uh, $1.4 billion in stock, uh, sent a letter to its founders at the start of this month saying um, that they should brace themselves uh, for turbulence uh, and review whether um, their investors rather should review whether they have enough cash to last the year. Like I said, naturally, I think we can expect to see a dip in investment at this stage, and the figures are reflecting that. Uh, Interestingly, though, in the same report, it shows that firms uh, in the digital identity and fraud space have seen an increase in their investment, which may indicate where priorities are shifting uh, in the face of the the huge change uh, the industry is operating uh, now in. Um, now, there's quite a lot of numbers there to gi- digest. I sort of went jumped from having low numbers to having incredibly high and lots of them numbers. But uh, Sharon, what, what's your take on those figures? Well, I think with all of these stories that we're all going to discuss, it's mainly down to like these sky high valuations and perhaps to be on a bit of a negative side. I know Debbie Downer here, but maybe there's a potential burst of this tech bubble because venture capitalist firms are now reevaluating their portfolios and they do want to see some profitable companies, especially because of this crisis. Um, a lot of people have been writing op-eds that it might be similar to the 2008-9, but from my perspective and my take, it's more similar to like 2001 um, and the 2000.com bubble where it was more about um, loads of people getting really excited over products via the internet in a similar vein that loads of people were getting excited over products via apps and you know streamlining user interfaces and stuff to do with challenger banks like the likes of Monzo, Sterling, um, N26, et cetera. So maybe we might actually start seeing some of these VCs pushing for them to start making a profit now. Um, and there's also probably going to be a drive towards more sustainable growth as opposed to just, you know, making sure you ramp up all of it just within the first couple of years and you put all your efforts into hiring a bunch of staff and having office space. I mean, that's going to be up for debate as well, um, as I've seen a couple of headlines talking about office spaces and whether or not we'll actually need them in the future, because um, Morgan Stanley is now teaming up with another investment firm looking at office spaces. So we, we don't know how that's going to work, too. So. It's just it's a weird time um, in terms of changes and developments, um, and it looks like these challenges might face a a pretty downside consequence of that. I mean, I'm a Monzo customer myself, and I'll just put that out there. 
Um, and I will say that I have not been using it that much. It's just because it's, it's a card that I go to for things that I'm doing when I'm out and about, but I'm, I'm inside my house, so I don't really need it as much. And I guess that's another thing with challenger banks is that they do have to weigh up their assets and liabilities because they don't have a lot of lending volume in this space and it's grown at a much slower rate than incumbents. Um, so they need to balance their assets and liabilities in order to have a positive return in the organizations. Um, so yeah, for me, I, I think it's a sign of things to come. Um, don't want to be too much of a downer. So I'll end it on a happier note where, as you mentioned, they are companies that are looking pretty strong during this crisis and this time, such as payments companies, cybersecurity, automation, and IT. So who knows? I, I think we'll just see a, a change in pace. How about you, Greg? Yeah, I was just thinking about, um, I was really thinking and reflecting about what you were saying um, just then about, you know, the consolidation of of players. And we've all, you know, had the had the coffee, had the coffee um, table chats and the, you know, and, and the dinner party conversations about who's going to buy who first and how, you know, how am I ever going to see consolidation? Uh, but without the risk of repeating what I'm sure many, you know, many commentators and industry speakers have, have discussed, it, 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 I see consolidation as inevitable. And I, and I actually see um, the global pandemic as probably accelerating that um, combined with uh, investment being harder to get to. And I can, I'll talk about my own experiences of that shortly. But, you know, investors from the ones that I'm speaking to want to see revenue and ideally profit uh, before they put their money in. Um, so I think, um, you know, not just people like Monzo and, 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 and others, but we're going to see lots of fintechs, if not all fintechs who are seeking investment coming under significant pressure to demonstrate active and engaged and ideally profitable customers very early on. So it's going to be it's going to be an interesting one to watch. It certainly will be at that and I think there's when you think of investment and when you think of large scale investment you usually think of names like SoftBank um, who have thrown around huge investment numbers uh, in companies uh, like Oak North in the UK for example. But they they've had some uh, some news come out in the past week, some pretty momentous news, and uh, it's news that I know Sharon can't wait to talk about. So I'm I'm going to pass it over to her. <laughs> yes, my number is uh, 1.36 trillion yen, which is 13 billion US dollars. Um, so this is the uh, net loss, basically, of SoftBank. Uh, so they initially estimated a one trillion yen, which is 9.6 billion loss. But then they got 13 billion instead. Um, so it's been a really interesting couple of months for SoftBank. I genuinely anticipate every story that comes out from SoftBank more than I am waiting for the return of Dynasty Season 3 on the 23rd of May. I am really excited for that. But I actually really enjoy reading about SoftBank way more. Uh, so initially, they put it down to its investment in WeWork, of course, um, because it did put in quite a lot of money within it. Um, it's a commitment totaling $14.3 billion. Uh, so they reported it mainly on that, but they also pinned it down to other investments like OneWeb, the satellite internet startup, uh, which filed for bankruptcy last month. So it warned earlier that it will not be paying a dividend for the coming financial year for the first time since 1994's listing. Uh, so they had a, an 18 billion blow from the Vision Fund, and this plunged the Japanese group to a historic full year loss. 
but that's not all that's happening at SoftBank. There's been a lot of dynasty-esque madmen drama. So Mayoshi's son, uh, just a couple of days ago, was on an investor call and he recently compared himself to Jesus Christ while defending his investment strategy. So he disclosed that SoftBank had run up a record of 13 billion annual loss. Um, but in that same vein, he he also said that Jesus Christ also suffered. So yeah, I can see the similarity in the Yoshi. <laughs> Jesus the winning formula. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, it definitely does attract attention. Uh, plus, he also clapped back at Moody's just like a couple of months ago for downgrading them from a BA1 to BA3. Um, and now Jack Ma is gone from the board. So it, it does seem like there's quite a lot of drama happening there. And prior to that, they were looking at going private too. So they were trying to figure out how to do that. Um, so yeah, I, I genuinely want to see a drama about SoftBank um, and what's going on there. I feel like it would be really juicy. It'd be kind of like Mad Men or like giving me like some juicy, what's that new one? I think it's Succession. Yeah, give me those types of vibes. Uh, what do you think, Greg? Well, I was just going to say, I think, I think, um, look, you know, looking at it through the dynasty lens, I think you've pretty much summed it up beautifully that it's going to be, you know, the next few months um, are probably in the fintech uh, ecosystem going to be a combination of madmen and dynasty with who, I don't want to say who kills who first, but who, let's say who divorces who first, or who marries who first, or who, you know, who might have an affair with someone else first and then decide that actually, they, they want to go back to their, their original partner. So I think that's the perfect um, summary of what we're going to see over the coming months, obviously, with the added, you know, uh, excitement, dare I say, of a global pandemic. So I think um, yeah. that was a really good summary, Sharon. <laughs> Alex, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. I can't wait for the Netflix show, to be honest. Uh, they're missing a trick if they're not already buying up the rights to it. <laughs> like honestly i feel like we should copyright it right now okay fintech futures we are writing this <laughs> we'll have the script by tomorrow netflix give us the chance but it's so juicy i genuinely cannot wait for more and yeah you are right they will be like you know who's going to have an affair what about the the marriages they're corporate marriages via mergers and acquisitions so you know Who's going to kiss the business next? I don't know. Let's find out. Oh, although Goldman is looking to kiss either PNC, Wells Fargo or US Bank Corp for a merger. So that's also pretty interesting within this space. Yeah, we're just living in interesting times, guys. Without the risk of uh, talking about maybe the first divorce or affair, I did just see yesterday that Monzo's uh, former chief lending officer, Tim Trailer, has moved on to another company after less than less than two years. Whilst that, you know, whilst it's not unusual for execs to come and go and leave and move left and right and up and down, maybe that's uh, maybe that's an affair which will which we'll see we'll see play out. Oh, a tasty treat, much like Revolut as well. They have loads of people coming and going too. That's one I'm following you know, in my peripheral. So here we are in part two, the golden mean of the podcast, where we take on a wider topic in the fintech industry and grill our guests with a few questions. We're going to be talking with Greg about how firms can best enter new markets, 
what they can prioritize and what pitfalls they should be wary of. But um, Greg is fresh from the founding, or at least the emerging out of stealth mode with, with Finder, a new service which aims to match fintechs with prospective partners. So uh, first up, Greg, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Finder, uh, setting it up and the challenges you encountered having to do so at a, a very unique and turbulent time like this? Alex, I must say, I love that. I love that line emerging um, from stealth mode, and that actually is quite a good a good summary. Um, so, for people who are listening to this, I've got quite a long standing relationship um, with with fintech futures. So, they you know they're they're all aware of coming out of this stealth mode. So yeah, so I, I I've I've been um, I've taken this opportunity in this global pandemic um, to launch a new business. So I'm right in the middle of raising money, um, launching a tech business, launching a fintech. So I can certainly share with you um, how, how that journey is going. But let me just give you a little bit of background and story as to how I got to this point, I guess. So I used to um, head up um, the retail partnerships team at Visa Europe. And so it was my job and my team's job at Visa to create partnerships uh, with retailers because, as you probably know, as, as, as FS and, and fintech people across Europe, about 70% of transactions are still cash. Um, in markets like Poland, up to 20% um, are still are still only digital. So there's a huge amount of opportunity and headroom for businesses like Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, uh, acquirers, banks, and other players within the ecosystem to change people's behaviors from, from, from cash to cards. So it was my, my responsibility to create partnerships with retailers because at the point of sale, at the checkout, that's where you t- decide how you're going to pay. So if you're going to take out some cash, then actually maybe the, maybe the checkout um, person could say, well, actually, maybe if you pay with a card, Mr. Watts, or they probably wouldn't know my surname, but if you pay with a card, you'll get something for that. So I so I, I used Visa's processing data to help um, show retailers where else their customers shopped when they left their stores, and so we were able to create segments and, and, and dashboards, which is a, a word I absolutely hate, which we'll talk about later. Um, but anyway, we were able to convince retailers to partner with partner with Visa because we could demonstrate and, and prove to them that they could get more customers shopping with them. So that's obviously good for everyone because it's more it's more business and it's more people moving from cash to card, which is good for the payment processors, the acquirers and the issuers. Anyway, that's a long, a long way of saying that at Visa and indeed earlier in my career, I, I've always I've I've always created commercial partnerships. Um, I previously worked for T Mobile and British Gas and, and, and others where I where I did a similar thing. And by the time I left Visa, I had a number of people working in my team across a number of markets. And we created partnerships with people like Carrefour, BP, Tesco, all, all of the major banks, all of the major retailers. But it was always in my head, you know, even with the, even with a Visa, you know, with the resources that Visa has, that it still took 10, 12, often more than 18 or 24 months to create a commercial partnership with a retailer or a bank. I think it might have been Carrefour that took it took at least a year, and that's with with Visa and, and Visa's resources behind it. So it always struck me, you know, why is it why is why is the creation of commercial partnerships so resource intensive? Why does it take so long? So so eighteen months ago, um, with that with that thought in mind, um, I could I spotted on the horizon all of these all of these fintechs, you know, who we who we all know you know pretty well, and I could see that they're typically good at two things: they're good at having a good idea. And they're good at raising, at that time at least, an awful lot of money. But they're not necessarily good at articulating that idea. Um, and they're not necessarily good at deciding, deciding which new markets to enter. They, they, they perhaps struggle to uh, spend that money in the most efficient ways. And we'll talk a little bit about, about that shortly. 
But so I, I set up a business called Demand Creation Partners, um, which partners with fintechs to help them to create partnerships with people like retailers and financial institutions. So we were we were successful and we helped a number of fintechs to create partnerships with people like British Gas, Visa, Lloyds Bank, um, many, many other, many other, many, many others. But it still it still was in the back of my mind. Why does it take so long um, to create these commercial partnerships? You know, with, even with with me, with you know, with with the time, with all not not I don't want to say with all of my experience, but I do know how to create a commercial partnership. And I thought, well, even if you know my team and I, it's taking us so long for fintechs who don't know how to approach a Visa or a Lloyd's Bank or a, or a Tesco, it's gonna it's gonna take you know it's gonna take them even longer. And couple couple that um, with the fact that depending on who you speak to, up to 90% of uh, fintechs fail within the first year for many reasons, but often because they run out of money um, and they just don't know how to create a commercial partnership. Um, And then you add to that um, that it can take up to maybe even two years, um, hopefully less, but sometimes up to two years to create a partnership with a tier one retailer or a tier tier one bank. So it's unsurprising that so many fall by the wayside Whilst they're whilst they're trying to whilst they're trying to get these new customers um, or these new partnerships, so so over Christmas um, with this kind of with this dream, if you like, of, of how do you automate the creation of commercial partnerships? I, I sat down uh, just just after Christmas, probably had a, a little bit too much brie uh, and Stilton, and you know, and getting a bit a bit, a bit overindulgent. And um, I just I just wrote up um, on a piece of paper um, what would an MVP be, a minimum viable product, um, and a business plan to create a platform which can automate the creation of commercial partnerships. And then roll forward a few days, I then pitched that to my now um, technical co-founder, um, who's ex Oracle, and he he's what, he was head of uh, architecture and technology at Primark, so he knows his stuff when it comes to technology. And I pitched it to him; he thought it was a great idea. So then we started to sketch out um, what this platform could could look like. We started to flesh it out a little bit more and roll forward um, to, gosh, roll forward to literally on the 10th of March when we incorporated the company about six days before the global pandemic hit, um, we created a business called Finder. um, And it's an AI platform where a fintech can come on, tell us all about who they are uh, and and crucially the types of partnerships that 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 they're looking for. They then get presented with a list of potential uh, uh, partners, and they can then go into the profiles of those partners. They can they can see um, you know lots of information about those partners, ranging from strategic objectives through to key people, through to turnover, um, all sorts of information. And um, we when we pull that from a multi- from multiple sources, including Crunchbase uh, and Companies House and and and, and the, the internet as well. And then the fintech can then request to get uh, connected or, or, or matched um, with with those uh, prospective partners that they you know that fit their criteria. And if there's a successful match, then the fintech um, and the and, and their prospective partner would have their details exchanged. Um, so our so our vision um, is to build out the platform which will take down the time it takes to create commercial partnerships from months and years to hours, minutes, uh, and days in, in, in just a few clicks. You know, considering that you're bringing up a new startup in this time, what do you think new fintechs entering a new market should prioritize in the first year of launching? I know we discussed about Monzo and all that stuff before, but should it be scale, user experience, profit? What should it be? Yeah, yeah, no, that's it's it's a great question. It's one which I'm pleased to say I'm I'm now I can now answer having having been at the the coal face rather than just advised my clients. I'm now actually 
creating my own startup. Um, I think I think in terms of I think there's probably two questions there. I think the first is you know what's it like to start in a global pandemic, um, and I think the second is um, you know what would my advice be for for, for, for fintechs um, or any indeed any startup when assessing markets to to launch in. So I think coming to the first question, um, I, I was pro- some people probably said I, I was mad for launching in the middle of a global pandemic, um, but but as I as I mentioned earlier, I, for us um, it's it's good timing because we. Our, our whole, our whole, our whole platform is all about um, automating uh, partnerships, or automating the creation of partnerships. And you know, we don't believe that you need to be physically with people um, to do that. So, so the backdrop of what's going on is is obviously good timing for us to kind of to, to reference that. Um, I think coming on coming on to the second question. Um, I'd say, I mean, I've, as, as Sharon, you know, I've written quite extensively for FinTech Futures. I have the, I, I write the, I write the Ask the Expert column, which is designed to provide practical tips to, to, to founders and to CEOs and to businesses. Um, and I've written quite a lot about um, how to identify um, prospective markets to launch in. I'd say a few things. I'd say the fir- first of all, you need to define your criteria for 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 what you would define as a as a market launch and, and what you would define as a as an ideal market. So, for example, do you want to uh, launch in a more mature market such as the UK or the, or the US, or perhaps maybe you could consider a market which has got lower barriers to entry such as Central Europe or maybe South America. Then you might want to look at you know what's um, in our case as, as fintech people you know what's the mobile penetration like in a in a particular country what's the what's the cash versus um, versus a card or digital payment ratio. So once you put together your criteria, you can then quickly assess potential markets against that criteria. Um, what I what I often in my in my previous life as as, as 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 running demand creation partners, I would often advise my fintech clients um, who perhaps were earlier stage um, to to, to launch into a market such as Poland or the Czech Republic or Brazil, uh, markets that have lower barriers to entry uh, and which have you know higher higher potential to succeed and to ultimately create positive case studies out of. But I've I've lost count of the times that I'd, I'd I'd speak to a fintech CEO and I'd say, well, you know, which retailers do you want to target and which banks do you want to target and which which markets do you want to operate in? And and oftentimes they'd say, well, we want to launch into the UK and the US. At the same time, uh, we want to launch with all retailers in those markets. We want to launch with all banks, and then you have to you have to take a moment uh, while you have a little intake of breath, and you say, "Okay, so you've got two salespeople if they're if they're if they're that lucky, um, and you want to launch in the two biggest markets for fintech, um, and you want to and uh, so you quickly you quickly get to a point with them where you say, you know, call me old fashioned, but why don't we put together some criteria for market launch?" A market launch, a market assessment, and, and, and identifying potential partners within them, and and so I often encourage a lot of my fintech uh, clients or, or my previous fintech clients, I should say, with demand creation partners, um, to to think about as I as I said, markets that have lower barriers to entry. Um, the US and the UK, uh, and I've, I've, I could talk for a long time about this, are very hard markets to launch in um, unless you really have deep connections. Deep pockets, um, and so it can be really hard. But the goal for a fintech or indeed any startup has to be in the first twelve months um, to create a successful market launch in whichever market that they choose, which can then demonstrate to prospective investors that they've got a case study where they can prove that their tech works and they're able to acquire and keep users. 
And now that you've also spoken to the point about, you know, entering markets and the barriers, uh, perhaps we can focus on the challenges that some of these startups face. So what have you seen as being some of the top challenges that these new fintechs face? Oh, gosh, where do I start? Um, great question. Um, I think if I, if, I, if I go back, I think what I said at the start, and certainly from my own experience, is that fintechs are typically good at two things, um, or at least have been so far. They're good at raising a lot of money. They're good at raising a lot of money. Um, uh, and they're good at having a good idea. Um, they're, obviously, they're, there are many other strengths that, that they have, of course. Um, but those are the two main things, raising a great deal of money and having a good idea. They're not necessarily good at articulating that idea in a way that prospective partners or customers or clients will understand. Um, so, for example, I, I've lost count of some of my former fintech clients who I worked with, who, who, we, who we certainly helped to, to, re, to reposition them. But when, they, when I first met a lot of them, they'd explain what it is that they did. And even you know, with my background in, in FS and fintech, I, it still took me quite a long time to understand what it was that they had or, or, or were selling or indeed what the benefits could be to their potential clients. So we spent a lot of time with them um, at the start, making sure that their idea was articulated in a way that, that you know, that prospective partners or customers got in the context of how is it going to help me? How is it going to benefit me? If I'm a retailer or a bank, how is it going to make me more money or get me more engaged customers? And so, so the very first thing that that, that fintechs, um, I think, really need to do, and, and certainly there's, I've seen there's a lot of improvement out there, is, is focus on what is it that you've got that how does it improve the lives of your of your of your either your potential partners or your customers, and and it's actually quite hard to do that. Um, you know, we typically advise clients to to develop a messaging guide. It's a very simple framework which asks, you know, who are your customers. Um, what's the solution that you've got? What's their problem? How does your solution fix their problem? What alternative solutions are there? How do you compare? What makes you unique? So by answering some of those questions, you're able to create um, just a much sharper, sharp, sharper proposition, a sharper product, a sharper, a sharper uh, business. And there aren't there aren't that many who do it really well. Um, and they they then wonder why perhaps they they're struggling to get to get cut through um, with prospective partners. So if they can't articulate, you know, very clearly in perhaps a sentence, what it is that they do and how that benefits their, their, their target partners or, or, or clients or, or customers or users, then they're going to struggle to, to get to get traction. So I think the first thing is um, making sure you've got something which people understand and people get um, and which demonstrates how you're going to, how you're going to, how it's going to help, how, how it's going to help them. And I think we could probably all think of examples um, of fintechs who perhaps have fallen by the wayside, or maybe even some that are still going. Dare I say, who could certainly do with you know a sharpening up of of that of that core proposition. Um, so I think I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing, um, and there's probably about ten things, but I won't go through all of them because we haven't got the time. And, and Sharon, you'll probably fall asleep. But but, I think, <laughs> but but I'd say the second thing is making sure, um, and this is more of a cultural thing, is making sure that from the start, uh, from the get-go, that you that you put in place whatever you need to put in place to create high-performing, positive cultures. And we've all heard, you know, we've all we've all heard the, you know, the, the famous stories of some of the famous neo banks um, who created certain reputations in the early days. And whilst I don't take away any of that from them um because they you know some of them have been very successful it has led to very high you know attrition uh, they struggle to recruit top talent because they 
they create a perception of yes of, of, of winning but also very aggressive and, and perhaps a culture which some people may not want to be part of because not everyone um, you know thrives in those types of environments so I would say after after articulating you know your proposition really clearly the second thing I'd say which might be controversial is really focus on uh, developing the types of culture that you want from the start because going through the process as I am now uh, starting my own my own my own startup um, we've already got uh, four or five six people working you know full-time on the business and we've already and we've already got a number of partners working with us but I know that every call that I have and into every interaction that I have with with with, with the team and with those and with those with those partners you know, it's really important. Um, you know, if I if I don't treat them respectfully, well, decently, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which all sounds obvious, you know, I won't get the best out of them, and vice versa. So I'm 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 a great I'm a great passionate believer in creating you know strong positive cultures where people can just be the best at who they are and thrive. So we've arrived at our final segment of the show. Uh, now, Alcatraz, Folsom, Arkham Asylum, all infamous prisons, but nowhere near as fearsome as the jail into which we throw our buzzwords. This is where our guest will submit a term, trend, technology, or something else in the industry that really gets their goat and argues why it needs to be put away for good in our fintech jail. Uh, Sharon and I will then debate whether it deserves its place there. So, Greg, uh, you hinted at it earlier in the podcast, but what have you got uh, to throw in the jail? Um, dashboard. Now, I just, I can't, I've lost count. I've, I've absolutely lost count of the fintechs who have a dashboard. Everyone seems to have a dashboard. Everyone seems to have a dashboard, whether it's built or not built. But I've never quite understood the value that these dashboards bring. I mean, typically, fintech will talk, a fintech will talk about, well, we've got this customizable or configurable dashboard, um, which is which is really interesting. But they, they don't really tell me what's in it or what it does. Um, so, so that's so that word. I, I would love to put. I would love to put in, in jail. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think from from, I'm going to actually act as the barrister for once in this case, um, and, and ask sort of uh, stand up with my wig on. Um, I don't particularly find uh, dashboard that too much of an onerous word, but I think that might just be because I don't come across it in everyday life. Um, I mean, what what term? I mean, Sharon, feel free to jump in here as well. But uh, what term would be better than dashboard? I mean, call me old fashioned, but but actually, why don't fintechs just say what it is that they've got for for, for you know that they've got for a retailer or or a bank? Just you know, everyone seems to have a dashboard. Everyone seems to be talking about blockchain, although blockchain would be my second word. But but I would just say you know, just tell us, just tell us what it is. So describe what it is that you've got, and then describe um, you know the benefit that it brings to a retailer. So for example, um, I could be a fintech and I could say, I'm probably going to use the word dashboard myself now, but um, I could say, I've got uh, a tool which allows you to see where your customers are shopping, when they're shopping, and I can provide you with um, a, a platform which can then help get you more customers to buy more stuff. So just, just describe what it is that you've actually got and the benefit um, to, to that to that to that customer in this case a retailer so rather than just saying I've got a I've got a dashboard I think it's a case of but 
you know, what, what is it that you, you know, what have you really got? And what are you really offering? Um, but I must say, it's quite controversial of you, certainly, um, uh, to, to take a view that it's not that it's not that um, uh, odious. But I guess because I live and breathe it, I often say to my to, to my former clients, you know, what, show me your dashboard. What does it actually do? Um, it's similar, yeah, similar to blockchain, if you like. It's um, but what does that mean? Anyway, but but Sharon, what do you think? Hmm, I think I'm tempted to agree with Alex because I haven't come across it too much, I guess. I mean, the only ones that I can think of um, are actual companies who use dashboard within their actual name, uh, which I, I find hilarious considering what you just mentioned. But yeah, I don't think it's too bad. They are trying to basically say that um, it's likely to be interactive or something um, than an I, I don't know what they're trying to get at, which I agree with. Perhaps they should just say what it is outright. Uh, but I, I, I need to see it more, to be honest. I, I need to see it more and then it can really grate me. So for now, I'll set it free. Oh, that's controversial. But go on then. Let's really- <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, now, case <laughs> I'm conducting an appeal. I'm now going to show you some examples which will bore you senseless. But You'll t- uh, Take it to the high court. <laughs> I hear you on. <laughs> well, that's all we have time for for this episode of What the Fintech. Uh, thanks very much, as always, to Sharon. Thank you for having me, as always. And thanks very much to Greg for coming on. Alex, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. But before we sign off, I'm going to ask the guys uh, what socials or websites they want, they want to plug while they've got the chance. So, uh, Greg, perhaps you'd like to go first? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd love it if any of your listeners could sign up for early beta access um, for Finder. And they can do so at www.finder.global. And that's Finder spelled F-I-N-D-R. So that's www.finder.global. Fantastic. Sharon, what about you? Where can we find you online? You can find me at Fintech Kits. That's Fintech and then K-I-T-S. I've recently also had my journal published on the Compliance Alliance Journal. Um, It's the 10th edition. Um, So you can check that out. Uh, It's titled, Is This Our Plumbus? So if all of you like Rick and Morty, you're probably going to, you know, enjoy a little bit of that as well. So yeah, give it a shout, give it a like or don't like it, share it, whatever you like to do with it. Just at least give it a glance. So yeah, that's me. Excellent. I would say to those listening, if you enjoy Sharon's pop pop culture reference on the podcast, and you definitely enjoy uh, that. Uh, For me, you can find me on Twitter at at ADHamilton91 and on LinkedIn just by searching my name. And as for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at at Fintech Futures and on LinkedIn by searching Fintech Futures and looking for our lovely double F logo. Uh, If you like this podcast and our other episodes, then please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud or your favorite podcasting service. Uh, we'd also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find our podcast by writing a review or recommending us to a friend. Um, as always, thank you very much for our support, and we will see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.